Thanks for clicking play on PageCast, a book-centered podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers. In this episode, avid runner, school teacher, and MC Sean Robson chats with co-author and longtime running coach Eric Orton about Born to Run 2, the ultimate training guide. This book teaches every runner, new and experienced, how to master humankind's first true superpower and tap into hidden reserves of strength and stamina. With chapters dedicated to free seven, food, fitness, form, focus, footwear, fun and family, we learn exactly how to change our biomechanics, clean up our diets, heal our injuries, adapt to healthier footwear and prepare for our dream challenge. Enjoy the episode. Good evening, folks, or good morning, and good afternoon, wherever you are. My name's Sean Robson. I'm a school teacher. I teach the fourth grade. I'm a wannabe athlete, very broken athlete. For my sins, I also commentate and MC a lot of trail races around the Cape Town, South African scene, which is probably my secret passion, um, or not so secret passion. I'm pretty excited tonight. I get to interview a man I've only read about, looked up online. I'm here with Coach Eric Orton, who's famous for a bunch of reasons. Most of them good, I'm sure. I'm sure some of his athletes might have other things to say. We're, we're really excited to have you here. Born to Run was, was a phenomenon, the first book. I mean, that's, that was my first introduction to you. And now, as all good coaches have, after the years, they finally take all those training logs and they put them together. And you've got a book, Born to Run 2. So welcome. Thanks, Sean. And wow, it's, it's nice to hear that we have a teacher with us. Um, both my parents were teachers. My wife's a teacher. My sisters are teachers. And uh, I guess I'm a teacher in some way in another form. So uh, we got a lot to talk about. Indeed. I was fortunate enough to be sent your book a week ago, and I've been plowing through it. And if I'm honest, it terrifies me a little bit. Uh, nice. Yeah. it's it's. You've been working with athletes for 30 plus years, right? Right, right. You've seen them all. You've seen everything from planter through to knees and shoulders and elbows. And it really doesn't matter whether you're an elite or a weekend warrior like myself. A lot of those things repeat. We're one of those special sports where where almost everyone can identify with things. I, I want to take it a step back. As I was reading the book, I was wondering, why this book and why now? Before I get distracted with that question, I think what you just said is super, super important. From a coaching perspective, it's it's very hard to tell the general athletes, the general runners out there that there's one plan that will help everybody, but that's the case. You know, you, I've been doing this for 30 years, as you mentioned, and our body's meant to work, work a certain way. There's a lot of principles that we can put into play, which is in the book that can help mm. so many different types of runners, regardless of what you may specifically think you have going on for you. So why now? And I think uh, th that's a great question. And I think it really steers back to how Christopher McDougall opens with the first chapter in Born to Run 2 is that he does not talk about himself very much in the original Born to Run, but he opens wow. with Born to Run 2 talking about his journey. And I think that's a crucial way to answer your question is that ultimately Born to Run 2 is a confirmation for Chris that this worked and why it took 13, 14 years for us to kind of write this book is that this is because Chris really needed that time to see that he's a fit, more fit, stronger runner, a better runner now than he was even back in, in Born to Run. So for him, I think he really needed this time to be able to say, okay, this works. 
I think that's a really important point you've made there. Time. I think time is something that we runners don't really want to listen to, right? Yep. I'll take a step back. I've pretty much done that progression from high school cross country, not very good, but out there on a Monday, love getting dirty with my buddies. Sort of flitted to university. You know, you go for a run every Wednesday, try to get fit, but you're in your 20s. You can pretty much eat and drink what you want, and you can still knock out a 21 on the weekend. And then... And then you start to sort of get back to it. In South Africa, we have a very strong culture of ultra running. The comrades is pretty much what everyone does come May, June every year. Did that. And I joined a road running club, right? And and road running clubs are filled with all dudes who used to be faster now have sore knees. We talk about programs and I'd say to them, well, coaches, whatnot. And they said to me, but you can find a program in the runner's world. You can can go online. What sets Born to Run 2 apart from every month's Six weeks to your first 21. Yeah, I, I think the best answer is that we really try to put out what we maybe consider is the most important foundation. This is a foundational wow. program for any type of runner, whether you're beginning, whether maybe you're dealing with injuries and wobbles, or you're a veteran runner who kind of maybe lost their way, hit a plateau, gotten older, whatever it is, is that we're going back to rebuilding this foundation. And that starts with the feet. That starts with maybe changing our perspective of what true potent strength training should be for runners. And then also the third kind of triad, if you will, um, from a run training perspective is really truly understanding the importance of effort and how that maybe can relate to you. For example, hey, we often hear, hey, I don't do speed work because it causes injuries. Well, running slowly, poorly causes the majority of injuries. So we need to learn to run well easily, maybe to eradicate most of the injuries out there. I'm I'm laughing and smiling because these are all things that various physiotherapists, sports doctors, and 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 pretty much I'm I have my sports doctor on call, fortunately married to my physiotherapist, who all live within about a six kilometer radius because yeah. otherwise what would happen, right? Yeah. As you were talking about the foundational things and you talked about the feet. I mean everyone knows Born to Run was the sort of precursor and the tipping point in the, the barefoot movement. I and I'm giggling because I was wearing Innovates ten years ago, right? And somehow from going from there, my Achilles got a little sore, so I got put in a bit more maximal. And it just kept going up, right, until I torn calves and now I'm wearing 10, 10 mil drops, that sort of thing. Right. What I really enjoyed about this book is both you and Chris have said, no, we're not. We, we still believe this. We believe that the foot is the foundational aspect to everything. Once we get that right, we build the next step. And I thought that was cool because everything's a, a merry-go-round. What is Jim Wormsley wearing? Well, he's wearing the thickest hokas known to man. So we must all wear a pair of hokas. That doesn't necessarily work for anyone or everyone. I, I'm fortunate enough to now, as I say, I've, I've recently become a grade four teacher. The kids don't wear shoes when they're on the field. Right. They're, they're flying around the field and they're not wearing the latest Nikes. What is the feedback you get from people who might be resistant at first to get out of those really comfy slippers that they wear and into something a little flatter and a little more difficult initially? Yeah. Um, so my own, I guess, mission from that perspective is that one, we first need to understand how important the feet are and that we can train our feet. We have muscles on the bottoms of our feet. We can train our 
feet to be our number one stabilizer that stabilizes the rest of our body. And so how we use our feet from a form standpoint and how we train our feet can go so far to getting the benefits of what maybe we've been told comes from a more minimal natural shoe. So now if we even just take the shoe aspect out of it, there's two ways that all runners can train to get those benefits. Strength train the feet and adapt better form. Okay, and that that doesn't even come in before we, we talk about the shoes. So then if we pull in the shoe aspect, is that say, okay, this is not an and or or proposition. This is not a black and white decision. If we understand that the closer we stay to the ground in our shoes, the more stable we will be, the better we will use our muscles. Therefore, then we can use shoe as a tool to help us become a better runner. And then we maybe increase our time or what I call increasing our capacity for our body to be in a more natural environment. And that's going to be different for everybody. For one person, it might be a a trip around the block. For me, I can run all day in the mountains in, in a minimal shoe, you know, and everybody's going to be in between. So it's understanding that this shoe can be a tool for you to increase your time in that shoe and increase your ability to stabilize and you use your body in a different way and in a better way. Okay. So I think where we kind of went wrong with all this is that we made it an and or, or or you have to make this decision and that's the only decision you make. No work from both ends. Use your 10 mil shoes on your long days. And on other days, use a very minimal shoe and start working towards the middle. Okay. I think, I think it's, I mean, it's exactly what you're saying, right? We live, we all know in a very polarizing society, it's always and or. Um, and I actually do happen to have a 10 mil and a 4 mil. Yeah, so right, I'm sort right. of playing in the middle. But it's interesting, as you're talking about this, what we regard as normal versus non-normal. My, my, my lovely wife is Canadian. And whenever I go to Canada, the roads are so wonderful. I just take my shoes off for two weeks. Yep. And I walk around the neighborhoods. And I have to stop and explain myself regularly. So I just fall back on the um, I'm African. Yep. And then everyone sort of nods their head and goes, well, he's a bit weird. And it's it's so interesting, right? Because we, we want that easy fix. I think that's that's the real thing. Right. In a previous life, I worked at a major international medical charity. So I was around a lot of nurses. And it struck me one day that nurses wear Crocs and Ultras almost exclusively. These are people who are on their feet all day. They didn't go and get the biggest heels they could get. They wear what's comfortable. Right. That always struck me as a really interesting, insightful thing. They're literally doing it to save their feet. And again, that's a great point. And what's not really talked about from a running standpoint is that most of our day is not running, you know? So now you have 20, 20 some hours out of your day that you're walking around that you could be in a more natural, minimal environment. So every step is helping your running strength. And that's again, not talked about. So it's, it's really sometimes what we're doing most of the time that's just as important. And that's just walking around, living our day. And I think that brings me to the next point. And you, so you've talked about form and I was, form is always something terrifies me because I have terrible form. I do a weird, best way to describe it is my right. looks like I'm doing like a round the roundhouse kick towards the end of racism, 
really tired and my leg's moving weird. Coaches sometimes are reluctant to tamper with form, right? Yeah, well, this has worked for you, so we'll just keep it going. This year, I now teach on the third floor. And walking up the stairs works my glutes like nothing else. My Achilles are sore, my glutes are sore. And someone said to me the other day, are you walking up the stairs right? And I was like, yeah, I'm I'm running up on my toes. And he was like, you're an idiot. You should be walking very deliberately. And it reminded me again, as you said, that there is a daily, a form we should be trying to almost embed in our daily lives, right? Not just in the 45 minutes I get to go run outside. It's a it's a lifestyle. Right. And, and that, that, that points back to how we're using our body. And that's something that's not talked about when we talk about form is that it's always how easy or how hard it is what, you know what do we truly understand the purpose of changing our form and what what you can't study is how having proper form makes you feel because now we're training and using our body in a more equilibrium state that takes away the tug and pull that is kind of that tightness that we experience as runners. And so again, that's just something that's not talked about. It's all maybe performance based and we can get into that too. It's hands down. The research shows that four foot striking eliminates force in the landing and midfoot and heel strike. the, The results are the same. So even in the research, it's hands down that form matters as far as the force that we're applying into the ground. So whether it's performance or injuries, it's hands down form does matter. The, the trick is from a coaching standpoint is that everybody comes in, in into it from a different standpoint. And it's just like transitioning to a minimal shoe. You've got to transition into you you know better form and some people just mm. aren't patient from that perspective. I wanted to ask you you worked I mean over 30 years you must have worked with thousands of athletes. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing something different with athletes now? Maybe I'll take it a step back. Like I said I I've run with a old school running club here, a group of old men who Back in the day, if you couldn't run a 2.30 marathon, you got laughed out of the room, right? No one even went to marathons anymore. We live in a world now where events are mass participation. Are you seeing the same issues or the same wants and desires or have things changed? Yeah, what what has definitely changed is back when I first started, I did a lot of triathlon coaching and, and early ultra coaching. And especially in the triathlon world, that was back when there was only, I think, two Ironmans. There was Hawaii and Canada. Yeah. And so and you had to qualify for those. So it wasn't just getting up early morning and registering on a computer to get into these races. So that was a natural form of progression and development for all the triathletes. They would start with a sprint distance. They would go to an Olympic distance. They would go to a half Ironman. And then eventually, maybe they would go to the Ironman. And so there was this natural development that took place that was a good thing. Now, to answer your question, what I'm seeing is, especially with ultramarathoning, people are just as for lack of a better way, coming off the couch and going right yeah. to these long distances and their development is just running longer, but the development they need is the strength and speed and then applying it to the endurance. So what's different is there's no real true development in that kind of normal everyday average age group runner. They're just jumping to really, really long distances. It's interesting as you say that because that's exactly sort of the, the trajectory we're seeing here, right? And then there's the unfortunate nature. I was listening to a podcast on my way home today, and they were talking about Courtney DeWalter, right? Yep. Greatest trail runner in the world, yep. nicest lady on the planet, yep. and she's a phenomenon. 
but her story is told in a way where it sounds like she just arrived one day in a pair of basketball shorts, smashed a 50K, and became the greatest runner in the world. They neglect the part where she's a, an elite-level state champion ski racer that holds, as you're talking about development, right? Yep. Developing that strength. And I think that's that's always so dangerous in our sport. It's, there's a, well, I can just do this. I, I watched it on TV. How difficult can it be? And And initially, it might not be, right? You can follow the... 90 days to a half marathon program to use a coaching term, those patterns might become embedded and it becomes harder and harder to pull through. Yeah. I, I'm glad you bring this up because I think again, going back to that, that runner who's just jumping to the long distance, they think what's most important is just building that long run because that's what's really specific to an ultra marathon, but that's yeah. not the development, the development, they might not even be fast enough from a raw training perspective to be able to run an ultra marathon at an appropriate level of effort. So that's where the development comes. And if you look at any traditional um, programs, you know, the kids, they're running short and fast. Then they go to our high school and they're, they're still running short and fast. They go to college and maybe it's a little bit longer, but it's still, you know, the 10 K version. And it's not until they get into their mid thirties before they maybe entertain the idea of doing a marathon. And so just like Courtney, they had this speed and strength development that happened before they even thought about racing long. And so kind of to steer back things to what you originally talked about in how the book is different from a program standpoint, this speed and strength development is packed into this program of that. That's what's important structurally. And from a performance standpoint is to have this type of development and then look to apply it to going longer. I'm glad you stated back to the book. I, as a running nerd, I get really excited, yeah. right? And I'm, one of the things that I, I quite enjoyed was the movement snacks, right? Yeah. Again, as, as you talked over the last few years, I've realized, oh no, I can run. I Literally, that was my life, right? Yeah. We do the two runs in the week, during the week, and then I meet a bunch of buddies and we do the two back-to-back weekend runs. And as long as I got the long run in, we were good. Yeah. Now, I go to a once a week, in a little hole, some lady puts us through a bunch of things where I'm standing on one leg half the time. And I don't understand why it's so difficult and why it hurts so much. And and I thought that was great about the movement snacks. None of them are intimidating. My secret, secret, guilty pleasure, Eric, I have to admit, is CrossFit videos. Yep. Okay. I'm obsessed by CrossFit dudes. But that's as intimidating as crumbs. What What you've offered is stuff we did as kids, right? Bear crawls, playing around. I have a 19-month-old. He can do those things better than I can. As you said, you front-loaded the program with that. Instead of saying, here's a 90-day program, follow it. It'll go well. Best of luck to you all. And I think that that's what I appreciate very much of it. And then the form. As I said, I'm terrified to do the wall test. Absolutely horrified because I know I'm going to do badly. But so important, right? Well, but that, that's the key is that, and this goes back to one of your original questions with coaching for form, is that so many athletes and coaches try to teach form in explaining it. We wanted to show people a way of doing it that they, they don't do it wrong. So by doing rock lobster in front of a wall in running in place barefoot, you can't do run form wrong. And that's kind of the point is that we're putting you in situations where there's no way for you to do it wrong. Then it just requires that muscle memory to take hold, you know, through time. So don't be worried about doing it wrong. Just just go do it because there's no way to do it wrong. And that's the point. 
the book is really welcoming, and I think that that speaks a little bit of that community aspect that I'm going to touch on a little bit from now. Community has become this really big buzzword. Everywhere I go, I mean, I'm sure Jackson Hole has got, I mean, it is the mecca of outdoor activity, right? There's communities for skiing and schemo is becoming huge around the world, ultra running, all of that. The program that you guys have developed isn't the, the classic Mark Allen triathlete thing, go off on your own and train. It's plugging in, tapping hands with someone. I thought that was wonderful. Is community around this program, was that something that sort of just, organically happened in the writing of the book or was it something that you very purposely included yeah so a a lot of transpired while we were writing this actually the first thing we did from a timing standpoint is we wanted this to be a photo book when we first started it was november so we knew it was going to be hard to get good photos as we were approaching our winter um so the first thing we did was went to california and got together a group of athletes a diverse group to do a photo shoot then that kind of opened up this whole new way of looking at this book of what we call the free seven. And we saw that community was a big aspect of performance, engagement, and how we were wired as humans. You know, we would run as hunting packs, you know, back when we would persistent hunt, we would use the group as a whole. And so I think we're starting to see that in the run communities and the run crews and the groups and teams you know, in all the urban areas, especially, this is a way to bring people together and use running as a way to do that, that is doing wonderful things, not only from a running perspective, but from a community perspective. We went to Run for Chinatown, which is a group that was started during COVID in New York City, Chinatown, you know, so that that not only did they get people to run together and they've hundreds of people showing up, But now every night they go to a different restaurant after the run to help the community and to, and so I think to answer your question in a long way, you know, that, that, that became just as important for us as run form and strength training and other aspects of training that you can get involved with a group that will really enhance your running. I mean, it's what I'm saying here, right? So I'm, I'm part of a run crew that, maybe has been going since 2015, four guys in a parking lot with some beers, right? Yep. Became 10, it became 20. And now there are 250 people on a Tuesday night. The beers are finished within moments yep. of finishing the run. But what I've also noticed is how running has become younger, or at least trail running. As you said, maybe a lot of that has to do with the, well, I don't want to really do a road marathon. It's boring. I don't want to run around my neighborhood. But there seems to be, and maybe it's a post-COVID thing, and I'd love to hear a little bit of what might be happening in Jackson and Wyoming as a whole. But are you seeing younger people saying, you know what, we want to embrace this. It's outdoors. It's yeah. it's exciting and fun. Yeah, I, I think what happened, and this is just kind of a hunch and anecdotal, I, I think COVID played a big role in that. I think what happened during COVID is that that really kind of popularized what we call FKT or fastest known times, where yep. during COVID, all the all the runners, all the high end elites had no races to run, right? So now what they did was those they work with their sponsors to to create these personal ad- adventures and personal projects similar to mountaineers and, and climbers, where they would go to the Grand Canyon yep. and do an FKT. And I think that just opened it, even though that was going on before COVID, I think that opened the eyes of the general run population is like, oh, I don't 
always have to go do a road marathon. I can go to the Grand Canyon with a, a bunch of friends, and that's no different than signing up for a race and creating yeah. their own project. So I think that that played a huge part and is like open people's eyes to kind of running as a form of adventure. With the rise of this amount of runners, new runners, are you seeing more runners looking for coaching? Because I, anytime I put my Instagram on, I see a new friend of mine or an acquaintance saying, after four years in the running community, I have decided to lend myself to coaching. Are you seeing that? It's hard for me to tell because I've operated my own coaching business for the last 25 years. So I've always had athletes and I've always worked with athletes. So it's hard for me to tell. I, I think what has happened is that the way coaching and information is out there now, I, I think there's a lot of different ways that is lumped into what coaching is that might not be considered yeah. coaching you know, hey, you know, just doing an online virtual program or there's just so many ways to get good information and to follow a program that I think gets lumped into kind of just the word coaching where what I would consider what I do is is really working with the, the athlete day to day, week to week and hands on. That's a different form of coaching. As I mentioned, I'm a teacher, but I started my life as a sports journalist and there are coaches and then there are man managers, right? Yeah. I'm sure you've got athletes who you can send the program through to once a week. They get it done. They hit the blocks. Yep. And then there are athletes who need an arm put around them on a Wednesday to say, hey, you're a special snowflake. Right. And Coach Eric knows you can do this. Yep. And I think that, that to me is oftentimes the difference between a run-of-the-mill program, guys got 20 or 30 athletes and just mails them out, and, and someone – and I think your book looks like that. Yep. So you've sort of jumped to that thought. Your book very much feels like someone who has invested – his life into the sport and these people, because you, I mean, I think coaching must be one of the most rewarding jobs in the world and one of the most difficult jobs in the world. Well, coming from a teacher, have. I know how hard teaching is. So I, I won't put myself on the, the pedestal of what teachers do, but sure. That, that's, that's, that's why I enjoy doing it is being involved in the journey with the athlete towards there's nothing better. I think than you know, knowing you've got something big coming up on a certain day at a certain time and working towards that, there's, you know, that's the reward I, I get and why I do this is that it's, it's, I don't want to say you're changing people's lives, but maybe you're helping them see and change their mindset of what life can be like for them. You know, and, and that's kind of what I really enjoy. It's not so much the race results itself, but it's, how they maybe begin to look at their own life and what they want out of their life. Draw that to the to the book. Is that what you're hoping? Someone who's wandering through a bookstore somewhere picks up a copy of Want to Run 2, may recognize a name or two, but picks it up. Is that what they're getting from that? It, that it's just setting them on a, on a road to somewhere? It's a couple things for me is that one, the whole book is based on one philosophy. Unlike your earlier question about, you know, there's so many training plans out there. This book is really based on a philosophy. So I, I think that's maybe what unique is that everything you're doing is based on that one philosophy. And so it's cumulative and comprehensive in that way. But I think getting back to your question is that I think I want someone who never thought they could run to pick this book up and say, oh, okay, no, this is for me. I can do it. And I can just start by running around the block. 
And I also want someone who has been running for 30 years and feels like their best days are behind them and they can pick up this book and feel like, oh, no, there's there's five more things that I can get better at that really will help my running. And so that's that's kind of my two ends of my hope for this book. It's quite inspiring what you just said to me. I, as I said, I, I MC races, right? So yeah. I'm the guy at the at the front who's meant to get a bit of hype and also tell people where the toilets are. And at the end, I'm the guy welcoming you to the line. And it's always quite sad to me when people don't appreciate the magnitude of what they've achieved. Right. Right. They've woken up. I often say to people, you woke up this morning and could have rolled over again. Instead, you put your shoes on. You might have driven a distance. Yeah. You got up. You ran a race. It may have gone your way. It may not have gone your way. What you've done is really special. And by Wednesday, you might not be feeling that, but something is going to happen in your week and you need to think back to this moment that you did something hard. And I think that's what your book, and that's what, just even talking to you, that I'd be enthused to be your athlete, right? Just wanting to do something that is a little remarkable in a world we live in today where comfort is the name of the game. Well, and I I think often when I speak, I, I use Christopher McDougall as an example, is that here's a guy back in 2006 Bunch of us went down to the Copper Canyon to race with the Taramari Indians. Scott Jurek's there, the best ultra runner in the world at the time. Yeah. Here's Chris, who didn't even know if he could finish. And if he did, he knew he'd come in last. So before he even started, he knew he was going to come in last. And here's someone who came in last, inspired millions of people. And so I, I think that resonates yeah. to what, what you were just saying is that I hope people can see that they can inspire other people just in how they're living and running in their own life. And it doesn't have anything to do with performance or ability is that if you just start running, you're going to inspire someone else to do it. And that can be inspiring for your own self, just like Chris was for millions of people. And still runs today. I think to me that the incredible thing, right? Yeah you know, why wait so long to write this book is that, you know, Chris started running in his forties and he's now, I think close to 60, if not 60, he's a better runner today than he was then. And so you give me hope. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't have to fall into this, you know, age trap, so to speak, you know, for the most part, if we put performance aside, there's no way that we cannot continue to feel really good as runners as we age. One of the things the book does is it never talks about performance, right? It does talk about performance, but not in the same way others might. It's what have you run for this? How does it feel? And it's performance around yourself. Um, As you were telling the story, I'm sitting here in my car and I'm looking down my driveway and the house behind me lives a little girl in grade five, goes to the school I go to. We walk to school. We're part of a little walking bus, I like to think. She is not the most natural athlete in the world, Eric. She doesn't have the shape. She hits athletics practice Monday and Wednesday morning. She's there before 7 a.m. And when I ask the coaches, they tell me she comes last. She doesn't look like, even sometimes it doesn't look like she's running. She's just moving her arms fast. And when I ask her about it, she just smiles, giggles, and moves. She likes to run and move her body because of the way it makes her feel for no other reason. Yeah. And I think that's that's absolutely inspiring, right? Well, and you, you hit on the word feel, and that's a big part of the book itself is that how you how good you can feel if you do things a certain way. And I, I think uh-huh. we, we wanted people to change their mindset of what running maybe is, is that it can be a, a form of art. 
it can be, you know, we, we liken it to the, the martial artist. Well, this is a craft. This is an art that you can hone through time. And if you do things a certain way, it'll reward you. But seeing it as a process, seeing it as a, a form of art that can maybe help you be more creative. Because when you go out for a run, your, your wheels start turning. And that's what it is for me. You know, it's my creative time for myself. You know, so there's many ways that running can reward us. If, it, if we see it as an art form or a craft that we hone through time, now it can be this lifelong pursuit that we kind of put all those measurables in kind of the back, the backyard, so to speak. I wish you coached all school coaches, right? Yeah. I, I remember, I'm not sure what your youth was like, but we'd go to first day of every year, we'd be all marched onto the field. You'd race each other. They take the top three kids and the rest would head for the bleachers. Yep. And that would be that for the year. And the next year, you would inevitably move to the back. As a result, there are kids who don't run, right? And then rediscovered in their 40s as, as, as a sort of punishment for the way they eat, yep. which it shouldn't be. It's just, right. I can think of nothing better than going to a run in the forest nearby with my buddies, pounding a beer afterwards, talking about how bad or how good it was. And it was always good, even when it was bad. That's what the book does really beautifully. I think I was saying Born to Run 2 is definitely not Born to Run. They are two different animals, and you can't expect them to be the same thing. But what it does do, as you say, is it carries I, that same ethos of philosophy. I don't know. I, I love everything you're saying. I, I think you know running should be fun. And you mentioned you know how it's often a punishment for what we eat. And I think even bigger, sometimes many runners think running is their form of exercise. And therefore for it to be exercise or fitness, it always should be hard. And again, punishment, Hey, I've got to get this run into, you know, maybe do something with my body, my body or my weight issues is that r running should be fun first and foremost. And we, if we don't see it as a form of punishment or of a form of even exercise or fitness, it completely changes our mindset of what it can do for us. And that doesn't mean we don't mm. want to go out and run fast and, you know, do our intervals that I think are yeah. fun, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is, is to make it fun. And if, if there's listeners out there who are just starting, make it as easy as possible for as long as possible and then stop, <laughs> you know, and that, and keep yeah. it as fun as possible. And, you know, and that's from my, my end of it, you know, of my mission of having more new runners in the world, you know, see it as fun. It can be fun and keep it fun. As we, as we sort of wind down, I, I want to commend you because the book is fun. Yeah. The book and the, and the techniques are fun. There's no video of someone in a Pilates thing doing something that looks like an ancient torture method. Right. I'm now 43, and over the, the December holidays, I think I've driven my wife crazy. I'm now like, oh, I'm getting older. We've got a 19-month-old. I need to live into my 90s. I need to run more. I need to do this more. I need a cold water immersion, which is the latest thing, yeah, right? yeah. And really, all I need to do as we have this conversation is move my body more in more effective ways. And I and you'll pardon me for sort of going on the side. I was in a park recently watching my little dude go up and down a slide and monkey bar and that. And I was on the ground, sort of where I always seem to be these days. And I was complaining about my age. And there was an older dude there who said to me, how old are you, man? And I was like, I'm 43. He was like, I'm much older than you. This was great. He said to me, when you're on the ground, get up quicker. 
just move more effectively, move with a little more purpose, but move with fun. And and now I find myself trying to, it's exactly the movement snacks, right? It's what, what you're saying. Just have fun with it, but do it deliberately. Have a plan. Right. Even just aside with that is I, I just put out a video yesterday um, about doing eight to 10 minutes eight to 10 second hill repeats for ultra marathoners. And, you know, from just an kind of a side note from what you're saying is that sometimes yeah. the ultra marathoners are just doing this slow marathon, ultra marathon march. Yeah. They don't, they're not running fast. They're not lubricating their body. And, and it kind of goes with what you're saying about get up faster. A lot of times move faster, run faster, shock the body um, is really going to add to longevity and health. We could talk forever, Eric. I've, <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, I would happily hide you in the car for the next 20, 30 minutes. But I want to say thank you for the book. I, I mean, I know it's now available in South Africa by Profile Internationally, and Jonathan Baller brought it out here. We're really excited. But I want to thank you and Chris for for this book, for this, for my side, for a training manual that I can that I can actually follow along and not feel intimidated by and come back to um, law of running by Tim Noakes is the, the Bible, right? Right, right? Of running. Unfortunately, the law of running now props up my wife's laptop and mini office because yeah. it's intimidating as heck. Right. right. Mitochondrial this and whatnot. What you guys have done is taken all the best parts of running and, and made it interesting and fun. So thank you. From the photo standpoint, you know, in telling the stories of the various runners, we wanted this to be accessible and Chris always said, hey, I, I want someone to pick up this book and see themselves in this book. Regardless of who you are, we wanted to be inclusionary and someone to see themselves as they read this book. And I think that's really kind of speaks to what you're saying and what we accomplished is that this is not mm -hmm. an encyclopedia training manual. This is a lifestyle of the art of running and it, it can exactly. apply to everybody. Regular people. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. You could very well put Jen Shelton and yeah. Scott Jurek in the book and God, but these are people like us, right? And that, that, that makes it accessible. Exactly. So, so thank you. Thank I, you. I'm super grateful. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening. <laughs>